Crime Curious is a true crime podcast that takes an in-depth look into real cases. The content may be triggering or inappropriate for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Crime Curious. I'm Charnel. And I'm Amber. And we are wrapping up. Brah. God didn't tell you to do that. Yes, we are. And my case is very similar to what yours was on Sunday. However, uh, this is a female perpetrator today. And I think that it'll be a good example to kind of compare the two for our listeners of determining actual significant like your your case from Sunday had significant schizophrenia situations Mm -hmm. mental illness happening mine definitely has mental illness but there's more components to it so I think that our the debate is going to be a little bit more spicy in this one for okay was this really mental illness or is it a combination of her motive and mental illness gotcha okay I'm talking today about Amy Herbert from Louisiana it's, this case actually wasn't terribly, terribly long ago, so you may have heard of it before, especially if you're from Louisiana, but we'll get to it. Okay. So Amy Herbert was born Amy Talbot. She was born in 1967. She was an evangelical Christian, and she worked as a teacher's aide at Lockport Lower Elementary School in Lockport, Louisiana. Okay. Shout out to our Louisiana listeners. Yes. Uh some of them have written us, so I know we have them. We have some Patreons from there Yay, as well. Yay, thank you. Amy and Chad, it's actually, did I say Herbert? I think so. Um, Because it's it's Hebert, but it's Herbert and some other, it's Hebert, sorry. It's like the Sherbet Sherbert. It is, it debate. is, yes. No, her <laughs> name is Hebert, not Herbert. I apologize. Um, That was a typo on, in my notes on my error, or on my, my bad. So Amy and Chad Hebert were married on August 9th, 1991. In 1994, they moved to 118 St. Anthony Street in Matthews, Louisiana. And this is actually the home that ends up being the scene of the crimes that I'm going to talk to you about today. Okay. So the couple, Amy and Chad, had a beautiful daughter on June 4th, 1998 that they named Camille Catherine Hebert. They just called her Camille. And then on May 12th, 2000, they welcomed Braxton John Hebert to the family. As time went on, in July of 2005, the couple started to have, their relationship started to to deteriorate. They started to go through some struggles, so they decide in 2005 to separate. Then by April of 2006, they get divorced. Okay, so so it didn't work. Yep, they're not together. So that gives you a little bit of background on when they met. They'd been together for quite some time, had children. Now, during and after the divorce, friends and family recall that Amy and Chad had a positive co-parenting relationship. They shared the children without issue. Their divorce agreement, they both had shared custody. They were both equally in the children's lives and got a welfare, got a, uh, got along really well. Well, Amy was also described as being a very loving and devoted mother. She was a strong Christian wo- woman led very much by her faith. 
And in 2000, they were, remember, they were divorced in 2006. In 2007, things started to take a turn when Chad began dating a woman named Kimberly Mendoza. Uh-oh. Yeah. I'm guessing that this was not welcomed. This was not. This changed Amy's state of mind. It changed her behaviors. It changed her co-parenting relationship capabilities with Chad. I was going to say, it sounds like they had a pretty good co-parenting thing going on. They did prior to, and things really got bad when Chad announced that he intended in 2008, now this is still 2007, but he let the kids know um, that that he and Kimberly were building a home together. And that in 2008, when the home is ready, they were going to be married. So the kids are really excited because their dad's building a new home. They're starting to get to know Kimberly. Chad's family is encouraging the children to have a relationship, a good relationship with Kimberly. Amy is seeing this. Now she's cutting off ties with Chad's family. Her now, Amy got the house, the family home, in the divorce. So she's living there with the kids when, for her parent, you know, when full-time. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to make it sound like the kids lived there full-time. They shared custody. So she's living there. Her in-laws, Chad's parents, live across the street. And she always had a good relationship with Judy, her mother-in-law, her ex-mother-in-law, until she found out that Judy was encouraging the children to have a positive relationship with Kimberly, Chad's new soon-to-be wife. So that caused some tension. Amy is not happy about her kids liking Kimberly. She's not happy about her kids being excited that they're building a house and that, that they're going to be the flower girl and the ring bearer. In their wedding. So it's like dad's moving on. He's, you know, starting this new life. Life. Mm -hmm. And his parents are encouraging it. The kids are loving it. And she's on the outside now. She's not not loving this. Okay. All right. So like I said, friends and family did say Amy's state of mind and behaviors changed. It got to the point where Chad started feeling compelled to take notes on things that Amy was doing because it seemed as though she was trying to sabotage his time with the kids, he would, like, for example, she would bring the kids to him two hours later than their agreed upon time. Just those kind of games that in our field we see all the time. Oh, yeah. She was also described by many who knew her at this point in time as becoming more depressed. That's the word that people started to use for her. She had two friends that also happened to work with her, Gina Adams and Shelly Mathern. And They worked at the elementary school with Amy, and they said that after the divorce, they talked very frequently with with Amy about kind of her deteriorating relationship with her ex, but also her desire to return to him. So she's confiding in these friends. They're noticing this. In the summer of 2007, Amy's very close friend, Robin Reed, actually had a prayer intervention that she and another friend and church uh, member, Naomi Lyons, held in Amy's bedroom, even, in the summer of 2007. They described that the reason that they did this is because Amy was saying that she felt like she had a demon inside of her. She wasn't feeling joy in things anymore. She felt like she had this demon. And her friends say she was always a really good mother, and I really can't say that I know many mothers even that were better than Amy. 
Okay, oh. that's that's where we're at with her with her friends' relationships and family's relationships with her. Okay. In the days leading up to the crime that I'm going to tell you about, Gina Adams, her friend I told you that works at the elementary school with her, mm-hmm. she called Amy up, asked if she wanted any cabbage casserole. Like, I made this extra cabbage casserole. Would you like some? Amy said no because she was fasting to get all the impurities out of her system. Oh, wow. She's like, the demon doesn't like cabbage. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I've got to starve the demon to get it out of my oh. system. Mm-hmm. Okay, so things are getting getting dark. Yep. Now, Amy actually even called her friend Shelly Mathern, who also works at the elementary school with her, that same day that her that Gina had offered her the cabbage casserole. She told Shelly Mathern that she was struggling with her thoughts, and she said she didn't really ask for clarification because she just assumed that she was speaking about her ex-husband. She's like, yeah, because that's what they primarily always talk about. Like if they're in a state of mind of venting to one another or whatnot, Amy is venting about her ex-husband right. and her feelings regarding all of that. So instead, Shell, instead of like asking for clarification about what do you mean you're struggling with your thoughts, she was being the helpful friend, giving her advice and said, you know, what about happy music? When I'm feeling really bad, happy music really heals my sorrows. So they hang up the phone, and the next day when Shelly and Amy see each other, they were actually at the Victory Life Church in Lockport. Amy was a Sunday school teacher there, as a matter of fact. Oh, wow. She even was she teaching was. Sunday school. Yes. Yep. The only words that she spoke to Shelly that day were, I couldn't do it. So Shelly assumed that she meant the music, listening to happy music. Sure. So she went about her business at the church and you know, didn't really ask for clarification. Now, after leaving church that day, Amy went home and visited with her other friend and neighbor, Mary Morris. She lives, Mary also lives just across the street from Amy because Mary wanted Amy to see some renovations that her husband had done in their kitchen recently. So the children, both of the kids, Camille and Braxton, come over with Amy they grabbed M&Ms from Mary Morris's candy jar. They went out into the yard to play while the women talked. She said that it's it was obvious to her that Amy was different, you know, from the divorce and that she was struggling with depression. She said that she was a lot sadder. She didn't really communicate with people the same way that she did. Mary was careful after the fact of what I'm going to tell you happens to say things like there were never any red flags for her as a neighbor because she saw things like Braxton sitting on her mom on his mom's lap while she was cutting grass with the lawnmower. You know, she only ever saw her being a really loving and doting and appropriate mother. Uh-huh. So, yes, she was different in that she was more sad and that she wasn't communicating the way the same way but she wasn't changing her behaviors as a mom gotcha so her friends probably chalked it up as like she's obviously going through a hard time mm-hmm. she got a divorce and yeah like we're moving on so i think that many of us can relate to this we have someone in our life that we know that is going through a hard time with their personal romantic relationships but it does not change how they mother how right. they parent and like Mary Morris said, to me, she was exemplary. She was a wonderful mother. She was well-versed in the Bible and taught them what it meant to be good children. So now I'm going to take you to the morning of August 20th, 2007. 
This is a Monday. It is the day after Mary Morris saw her or, you know, had her over to her house and everything was, although she was sadder, everything appeared to be normal. The co-workers that I mentioned to you earlier, Gina Adams and Shelly Mathern, they were concerned because Amy didn't show for her teacher's aid job at the elementary school, which I don't think I mentioned, but the elementary school is just down the road. Like, oh, okay. Amy's house is, like, in the backyard of the football stadium at this school. Oh. Like, it's very, very close. So it's super convenient for her to go to work. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. And she didn't call in. She didn't show up. That was odd to them. And Gina and Shelly both knew that her in-laws, her ex-in-laws, lived right across the street. I mean, this is a small enough community. They know each other, Right. So Gina and Shelly actually decided to go to Amy's house and just check on her since she didn't call in and that was just very out of character for her. And Amy's vehicle is in the driveway. The part that I, they did knock on the door and no one answered. And the part that I am unclear of and that the court reports did not clarify for me and neither did any of the news reports I saw on this. I do not know if at this point in time, Gina and Shelly contacted Chad and Chad contacted his dad who lived across the street, or if Gina and Shelly just went across the street and contacted her ex-in-laws, R.J. Buck Hebert and Judy Hebert. I don't know how that happened, if it was, I, but I do know that Gina and Shelly were there, the first ones to notice that something was wrong and were there. So however that, that played out, I'm not sure. But what happens is R.J., her ex-father-in-law, R.J. Hebert, um, he went by Buck. He goes across the street to kind of check things out too. And so in, in Buck decides, you know, he realizes, you know what? I didn't see, I haven't seen any hustle and bustle around there. Usually I see my grandkids leaving for school right, in right. the morning, you know. Um, at this point in time in 2007, Camille is nine years old and Braxton is seven. I really don't like what you're leading up to right now. I know. Buck knocks on the front door. When no one answers, he goes ahead and breaks into the utility room of the home, climbing through a window. Because he he's worried. Oh, yeah. For sure. Especially with her car being there and right. she just didn't go to work. I would be super worried. And not answering. No one, you know, no one's answering the door. The kids, he can't even hear the kids playing around. Like, this is different. So he immediate, Buck immediately sees blood splattered on the floor of the kitchen dining area. And in the master bedroom, he saw a large quantity of blood and Amy lying in bed with the children. Oh, no. Buck tried to exit the house to summon help, but the doors had been deadbolted from the inside and he could not find the keys. Oh, my god! Like gosh. they were deadbolted with a key from the inside. Oh, that is so... That is freaky. Yes. So at this point in time, I do know at 9.30 a.m., Chad Hebert, the children's father, called 911. So I don't know if Buck was, you know, if he was able to exit and call Chad. I'm not sure. Or if in general he was letting Chad know I'm busting into the house, something is wrong, call 911. Again, another detail that the court um, records did not give me. But we know 9.30 a.m. Chad calls 911. Upon arrival, the police break the kitchen door down to enter the house. And when they entered the master bedroom, Amy lifted a large knife in her right hand and shouted, get the fuck out. 
the police used a taser to tase her to force Amy to drop the knife so that they could attempt to rescue the children. Now, this is where I'm going to give you one of the biggest trigger warnings in the history of Crime Curious to violence of children and animals. I don't want to. You can't go anywhere. This, you signed up for this shit. <laughs> Everyone else, though, you can, can skip, turn it off. <laughs> skip yourself a good 30 seconds. Take me with you, people. <laughs> exactly. So I'm going to get through this quickly because it's difficult. Uh, I've done chugged my mimosa, too. All right, too. mimosa is gone. Uh, I was okay. prepping. You already gave me a forewarning. I still have a full mimosa, and yours is completely gone. She knows I'm a soft serve, so I <laughs> I think I was prepping. I'm like, all right, mama's, Here we go. mama's drinking up because I know it's bad. If you skipped ahead in 15 seconds, we still have not gotten to it yet, so skip ahead <laughs> in 15 more. We're still talking. More. We're still talking. We're procrastinating. So what the police find is that Braxton suffered approximately 20 to 25 stab wounds to his chest and approximately 50 to 55 stand, stab wounds to his back. The number of wounds could not be determined exactly due to the presence of perforating wounds, which means wounds that went through his entire body and exited the other side because of his small frame. He also suffered five defensive wounds on his left arm and one or two defensive wounds on his right arm. The cause of death was determined that Braxton bled to death. Camille suffered approximately 30 to 35 stab wounds to her chest and approximately 30 to 35 stab wounds to her back. She also suffered perforating wounds, so wounds that went through one side and into the other because of her small frame. She had five defensive wounds on her left arm and nine defensive wounds wounds on her right arm. She was also stabbed in the scalp approximately 30 times that did not penetrate her skull and were not discovered initially until her head was shaven during autopsy. The cause of death was that Camille also bled to death. So there, we got through the horrific parts. I will get to more of the details in terms of what Amy said happened in a moment. This is so sad. It is. And she's laying in bed with them. She's under the covers. Um, The other thing that the police discovered in bed with the family was multiple, once they removed the children from the bed, they discovered multiple knives in the bed. Some were bent, and as well as the family dog. She had killed the family dog oh as well. Oh, my God. Yeah. I told oh. you, biggest trigger warning, I think, ever. Oh. Now, the police also discovered two notes at the residence, and I'm going to read for you what the notes, both of the notes stated. So the notes said, Quote, Monday, 8-20-07. Chad, you wanted your own life? You got it. I'll be damned if you get the kids too. Your ambition, greed for money, won out over your love for your family. The hell you put us through, and I do mean all of us because you do not know what the kids used to go through because, of course, you weren't here. There is no kind of life for them to live. I hope you two lying, adultering, Home-wrecking whores can have more kids because you can't have these. Actually, I hope you can't because then you'll only produce more lying, home-wrecking, adultering whores like yourselves. Maybe you can buy some with all of your money you will make from this house the life insurance benefits that you'll get from the kids. Wow. Yeah. 
will that is one of the most brutal savage letters i've ever Mm -hmm. heard after can you imagine the police reading that after they find the bodies of two children and her being like yep you can't have the kids and this is where i'm telling you amber that the debate here is different from your case on sunday and that he clearly your your perpetrator from sunday was clearly suffering from a schizophrenic episode I think that these letters show motive. Absolutely. Yeah. When we will the, get um, to the trial of what the defense tries to to place here. The adulter the adultering, she definitely like she could not stand the thought of seeing him happy and the adultering like she was not over she still felt like he was cheating on yes. her. Well, because apparently the two started dating before their divorce was final. Oh, so okay. in her mind, with her faith, what, yeah, marriage is a they're adultering. Still, yes, marriage was still not fully done. Yep. So I, I get it. I guess. I mean, I get where she's coming. I from. I guess uh, for me though, that argument always is kind of like, okay, really? Because the the divorce determination is man's law. Okay, it takes like for the state of Michigan, it takes six months if you have children before the the court will move forward with your divorce. Okay, that's man's law. Mm-hmm. Like she seems to live by God's law, whereas you're not supposed to be divorced at all. Mm-hmm. So I I just find this whole thing hypocritical. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, you're right. I mean, she said it herself. You're not going to have these kids. Nope. nope. You're not going to be happy with somebody else and have these kids. The second note was written to her ex mother in law Judy. It says Monday, eight twenty, two thousand seven. Judy. You run from the very thing you support. Monica pairs up with a married man, becomes a kept woman. Your response is, maybe she's in love with him. So what makes it okay? How stupid. Your sons have affairs. Bring these whores into home. You welcome them all in. I guess it's okay for them to hurt the family as long as it's not you. Well, when you started delivering my kids to that whore, Kimberly, that was the last straw. To all my friends, thanks for all the help. Support you tried to give me. I love you all. Sorry, Daddy. Celeste Renee, I love you all too. Ooh. Yep. So Amy was taken to the Oshner St. Anne Hospital by ambulance for treatment of her injuries. Amy's wrists were severely severed, exposing tendons. Both of her lungs were collapsed from stab wounds to her chest. Oh, she stabbed herself too. Oh, yeah. She had stab wounds on her skull and neck and wounds to her eyelids. Oh, God. She was in the ICU and nearly died, but she did survive. Now, something that would come up later in trial is the fact that she was initially interviewed while on many painkillers in the ICU the day after, but that statement of whatever she made was not permitted during the trial, so it doesn't matter anyway. I'm not over the eyelids yet. Yeah, we'll get to what some psychologists have to say about that. And, and actually, so it was never disputed. It was, we've got the evidence here. I will tell you, when the police first come in and they see this, okay, and they see a woman with a knife and she's saying, get the fuck back, and she's got all these stab wounds, the police do not know, is there a perpetrator on the loose and she thinks that she's defending Right. The kids, does she realize the kids are dead next to her? Did someone do this to them? They had not gathered all oh the evidence yet, right? I'm, I'm sure they had 
a lot of questions. Right, because it would be very difficult initially to just be like, this mom just killed the family dog and both of her children and is laying under the comforter in bed with them right now. Okay, so the police start gathering evidence. They have to run forensics, fingerprints, all this stuff on the knives. Later on in court, that's brought up as like they had no warrant. They should not have collected all that stuff because she was clinging to life and being taken to the ambulance. So they, you're only supposed to get um, a warrant, excuse me, you're only supposed to collect evidence without a warrant if you feel that the perpetrator could somehow erase the evidence, right? So her defense team is like, she was in the ICU. Why'd you collect this without a warrant? She clearly wasn't erasing it. And the police's defense was, we didn't know without collecting evidence if this was done by her hand or a perpetrator. Right. And I get that. Like, Mm -hmm. definitely. They definitely had cause to break in there and to collect evidence to try to piece all of this together. And they did have to tase her to get safely to get themselves to the children in hopes that they could do some sort of rescue of them. Now, unfortunately, they couldn't. That all, I mean, I'm with the police on this one. So I do, I'm going to take you to the trial because now we're going to break down the real debate here. There's no disputing once fingerprints come back and, and all of this stuff, there's no disputing she killed her children. She's never in her defense tried to, dispute that. But she does enter a plea of guilty by reason of insanity. Now, in Louisiana, they do not have the capability for diminished capacity like they do in other states. You're either insane or you're competent. There's not the so that gray area, the diminished black and white. It is. Yep. So she enters her plea by reason of insanity. And again, she did not dispute that she killed her children, but she said initially that it was God speaking to her, telling her to kill her children, the dog, and herself so that they could all be together in heaven. But later, she tells another expert, and we'll get to it, that it was the voice of Satan. Oh. So let me take you through Louisiana laws of insanity a little bit, all right? At the time of the offense for insanity in Louisiana— At the time of the offense, it requires a showing that because of mental disease or mental defect, the offender was incapable of distinguishing between right and wrong with reference to the conduct in question. Okay? The law presumes that a person is sane and responsible for their action, and it's the defense that has the burden of establishing that their client, with the preponderance of evidence, was insane. So that burden falls on the defense, not on the prosecution. That's going to come up later. I wanted to highlight that for Louisiana law, insanity requires of sh- uh, the showing that the person was incapable of distinguishing between right and wrong with, re- with reference to the conduct in question. In her letter to Judy, she literally says to her father, I'm sorry. Yes, she does. So that right there, sorry, daddy. Celeste Renee, I love you all too. She knows. And then the awkward shout out to all of her friends. For all of their support. Right. That that, that, that part that, was just weird. That they tried to help her. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I just little nuggets. Just little little nuggets. In the trial, there was lay testimony, which means testimony that would be testimony of family and friends. These are lay persons. All right. And there was expert testimony. And the, the jury does have the ability, and we talked about this a little bit in your case, that 
the defense and the prosecution can lay out as much lay testimony and expert testimony as they want, but the jury does not have to take into consideration the expert testimony as being fact to this particular perpetrator. They have the ability to determine for themselves if they believe that this person meets the law for insanity or not. The, the definition that I described for you. First, the defense during the trial calls Dr. Alexandria Phillips. Now, she was also a witness and they um, made her a court-appointed expert of psychiatry. Mm -hmm. The reason that she was also a witness is because she was the first attending physician when Amy arrived at the hospital. Okay, so she's like the first psychiatrist on the scene, the first one to really interview her. Now, she attempted to talk with Amy on August 21st, so that's the day after the incident. She was unresponsive at that time. She did almost die several times. So she went to meet her again on August 23rd. Then the reason is because the nurses actually summoned her because Amy was refusing to eat. And she was refusing to eat because she was worried that she was going to get sick and vomit and how bad that would hurt with all of her wounds. I mean, that would probably hurt really I bet. Now, I really but, wish that would have happened for her. I have yeah. no remorse. What Dr. Phillips testified to is that Amy initially told her in her very, she's the first psychiatrist on scene, remember. And she, Amy told her that she heard the words of Satan for a long time and that she had pushed them away with the words of Christ in prayer. She said that she had not that she had not been planning on killing on killing herself, but Satan took over and she snapped. Like, how long are we talking? Do you know? It does not say. Okay, I do not know because I'm like, it was it years? Was it after the divorce? No, was it this okay. In in terms of when you rephrase the question like that, she does not have a history of. And zero mental health zero history. Zero mental health history. That comes up in just a bit. This is literally since the divorce and daddy's building a new house with a, and going to gotcha. marry a new okay. wife. That's, that was the one thing I was curious about. Like, was it a long time or was right. it after the he moved on and right. had, had it was a after. relationship? It was after. So Dr. Phillips asks Amy, okay, are you hearing the voice of Satan right now? Very standard psychiatry question. And she's like, yeah, Satan's in the room laughing at me right now. So she observed, you know, she's looking at Amy's eyes. She felt like Amy's eyes were tracking the room. Then all of a sudden, after the Satan question and they're talking about Satan, Dr. Phillips was trying to kind of get her like to redirect and, and come like, okay, hey, Amy, you know, here, here, I'm right here. Well, all of a sudden Amy begins screaming. So Dr. Phillips concludes that she was completely psychotic and that she was responding to internal stimuli. So an antipsychotic medication was prescribed right then right. and there. Guys, right. she's the first like person in, on the scene. In court. This is what she testified to. Yep, that that day, the day that she finally, Amy was finally well enough to talk to her about three days after the incident. Mm -hmm. That's what happened. Okay. Satan took me over. Satan's in the room with me right now. Now I'm getting hysterical. Now I'm going to start screaming. Okay. So as a doctor, as a psychiatrist, she's like, yeah, I'm prescribing antipsychotic medication right now. Mm -hmm. Sure. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. Then the defense is like, all right, now we're going to call another witness. This is Dr. Resnick. He, his name is Philip, and I didn't want it to get confused with Alexandria Phillips, the, the doctor I just told you about that was first to prescribe the medication. So his name is Dr. Resnick. And he was actually deemed an expert in psychiatry for the purposes of the case um, in the court. Okay. 
Now, he got to see Amy on August 6th, 2008. Now, this incident took place in the summer, August 20th, 2007. So almost an entire year later, he sees her. And he told the court that in the summer of 2007, she was depressed. She had lost weight. She didn't have a good appetite. She was having trouble sleeping. She lost interest in things. She felt fatigued and worthless. And that she had trouble concentrating and remembering things and had thoughts of suicide. Dr. Resnick defied, defied psychosis as being out of touch with reality. In his opinion, on the day of the offenses, the, Amy suffered an auditory hallucination. She said that she heard a forceful male voice telling her that her ex-husband was going to take away her children and that she had to keep the family together and that the family had to die to stay together. Amy told Dr. Resnick that the voice instructed her to stab her children and to kill herself, and after she killed the, the, her children, the voice dictated the notes that she left at the scene. Dr. Resnick noted that he did say, like, right on the stand that Amy told Dr. Alexandria Phillips that she heard Satan laughing at her. Dr. Resnick said that she was having auditory hallucinations any time that she claimed she was hearing the voice of Satan. So he maintained that he was not surprised that Amy's hallucination at the time of the offense reflected her concerns with her children and that with her children getting close to Chad's fiance Kimberly and that he was building a new house and that she might lose custody of him. Important for me to note right now, Chad testified he never had any plans whatsoever to take the children away from her. That was never arguments they had. That the he believes that that's complete BS mm -hmm. in her story because they did not have that type of relationship. Yes, he started documenting things like, why are you bringing the kids two hours, the games she was playing, right. of bringing the kids late to visits, to, you know, to his parenting time, but not, they were not in a custody battle. They had shared custody and it was never on the table that he was going to take that away. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder if she looked at it like, you know, he's moved, basically starting this new family without her. So mm -hmm. it was like taking, mm -hmm. you know, yep. him and the kids away, yep. even though he wasn't ever going to take the kids away. No, you know, no, but, but in her heart, she felt like they were slipping away because they they're liked, going to this. They new, liked Kimberly. You know, they were getting this brand right. new house. Yes. Right. But, yep. I get it. She's insecure. It's insecurity yeah. is what it is. Now I want to point out that this Dr. Resnick, he saw Amy once and made these determinations he is a paid expert for the defense, okay? And he saw her nearly a year after the incident. Uh-huh. Okay, so, like, to me, that's important information if I was a juror to take into account. I'm going to give you another huge trigger trigger alert because another doctor, the doctor, Dr. Resnick, excuse me, that I was just telling you about, Amy went into detail of the actual murder and there are some things that one of the children says that's really hard to hear. So if you don't want to hear it, skip ahead about 30 seconds or so. All right. I'll be back in just a few yep, minutes. You just step out and I'll say it into the mic and you come back. Just because give me the signal and I'll, I'll return. This is why I had to drink mimosas today, as you can hear me drinking one drinking right now. So, and I'm not sure that I've ever said anything so heartbreaking on, a, on the podcast before, but Amy told Dr. Resnick that when she stabbed Camille... Camille said, Mommy, I love you. 
I don't want to die. And Amy told her, I love you too, but I don't want daddy to take you away. And she continued to stab her. Oh my God. I don't think I've ever said anything so heartbreaking. That's horrible. Because she initially stabbed her and then took her into the bathroom. And so the child was alert and and was. Oh my God. No. Telling her that she loves her and that she didn't want to die. Oh my God. So yeah, I hate Amy. My heart is just hell is not shattered. Hell's not deep enough for this woman, as far as I'm concerned. There isn't there isn't a hell bad enough for something like this. And her explanation, oh, I love you too, but I don't want Daddy to take you away. He's not going to have you. Breakups are hard. You go through a traumatic event, and your mental health spirals out of control. Was there motive? I do think so, but I'm almost like. There's, it's both. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm like, there's motive, Mm -hmm. but I think the mental health comes into play with that too. I mean, definitely. Don't get me wrong. There's a problem here. If I wasn't over someone and I watched them move on with someone else, I can get on a normal level, let's say. Like, I don't want to say normal. On a a decent level, I could see that would be hard. Uh, uh, Right. Like, I, I see my, the person I, you know, am not over moving on with someone else and, you know, what if the kids like her better? Like, I could see some of that thinking. Yeah, but and the insecurities playing. If, if there was something pre, you know, a, a something underlying going on, it could have sparked the mental health to spiral out of control or not getting help for when she was having these right. thoughts. We're gonna but. we're gonna get to to some more of. The, I see exactly what you're thinking. I'm gonna play devil's advocate a little bit, and the prosecution did too, and I was happy to kind of see that. In that there is no prior history whatsoever, not even of depression. And the people that are saying that she's suffering from major depression and psychosis at this time, they did not do, we're not talking full-blown psychological evaluations here. We are talking one to two visits at most because they were hired by the defense. That's where my concern, I'm like, what does her entire psychological evaluation work up? Mm-hmm. really say you know what I mean so do you feel her. like it was just strictly motive no no she definitely she obviously was majorly depressed most definitely do I think it's a schizophrenic situation no no um yeah her mental state definitely stopped her ability to to have impulse control here but I still think that her motive I don't think her motive was, was her motive, the long and the short of it is, she did not want Chad to have those kids. I think that was obvious. No one could. My other other thing here is that she gave herself wounds enough that she could still live. You know what I mean? Like she did not, she did not successfully complete suicide. Mm Mm-hmm. And and I don't know if that was really her intention. I'm I'm not sure. It's su- it's such a hard case. I don't. I'm not a fan. I do. Not, I will never be able to defend someone who can sit in a doctor's office and say this is just nonchalantly. This is what my kids said before I killed them. Oh, that's to be able to recall that. You know, the other thing we hear about a lot during psychotic breaks is is memory loss. She doesn't have any of that. Sure was able to tell the doctors everything that happened. She woke up at 3 a.m. and she heard 
Uh, she told one doctor it was the voice of God. She told another doctor it was the voice of Satan. Ugh, the whole thing is just awful. Most definitely. I think this is one of the, the hardest, one of the worst. Mm-hmm. This is almost worse than the Moore's murders. I don't know. Dr. Resnick told the jurors that he concluded that on the day of the offenses, Amy was suffering from major depression and killed her children because she was psychotic. In his opinion, with reasonable medical certainty due to severe psychotic depression, distorted mind, delusions, and hallucinations. Amy could not distinguish whether stabbing her children was right or wrong because she she believed that it was in their best interests. But the thing is, she believed it was in their best interests, but she says, "I, I love you, but I don't want daddy to take you away. That was about Chad in that moment. You know what I mean? Mm hmm. Anyway, I'm not a psychiatrist. I I will throw that right out there now. My opinion means nothing. But he concluded, however, that he had seen no evidence that Amy had ever been diagnosed with any sort of psychotic issues prior to the offenses, including when she saw a neurosurgeon and physical therapist in August 2007. So in, in August of 2007, she needed to undergo physical therapy to recover from her self-inflicted injuries. She saw neurosurgeons, all that stuff. None of them, anything after, it was like, this is the only time that she has shown a psychotic episode. That's it. Mm -hmm. Since the murder of her children, she has never displayed any psychotic tendency or even hint at it since, which he did say is pretty rare that someone would have Nothing leading up to have a psychotic break that is murderous and then never have another one again. He admitted to that on the stand. And that's where that's where my problem lies, I think, with the insanity part mm-hmm. plea. So then the defense also brings another expert, Dr. Glenn Wolfinger, Havana, Havana, I could be, it's A-H-A-V-A, so I'm probably saying that wrong. And the court did accept Dr. Glenn Havana as an expert in forensic psychology. He became involved in the case in January of 2008. Remember, it happened in August 2007. Mm -hmm. And he interviewed Amy four times between March 28th, 2008 and August 11th, 2008. He concluded that he didn't think Amy was exaggerating or lying. He diagnosed her as suffering from major depressive disorder with a severe recurrent and with psychotic that was severe and recurrent and with psychotic features. In his opinion, on the day of the offenses, it's more likely than not that Amy could not distinguish right from wrong with respect to her criminal conduct. Amy was a religious woman, had a delusional belief consistent with depression that God was speaking to her and communicating with her. He's This is the doctor that, he, that she claimed it was God that was speaking to her, not Satan. According to the defendant, on the day of the offenses, God spoke to her and told her, Oh, I'm sorry. According to Amy, on the day of the offenses, God spoke to her and told her, quote, he was going to take the children away and she had to kill the children and herself to keep the family together so that they could go to heaven. Amy also advised Dr. Havana that the voice told her to stab the children in the head. And Amy told Dr. Havana that she stabbed the children. She told them that she loved them, but that she could not let their father take them. She explained that the voice told her to kill the family dog and then to make coffee to stay awake to write the notes. Bruh. And, right. Bruh. Bruh. God, 
God didn't tell you to do that. Um, Make yourself some coffee after you've killed the kids and dog. So one of the things I was wondering, did she did she show remorse afterwards at all? Not. I, did she we'll like? Get, we'll get to it. Okay. We'll get to it. The doctors do not testify to, to how any remorse. to any remorse okay. how she behaved during her um, meetings with them. No, but we'll talk about how she acted in court. That was, yeah, I didn't see a lot in mine either about, like, was there some remorse afterwards? I didn't get those details either. Yeah. But I was curious. You yeah, know? they're not they're not often in the court reports. Um, but I prefer to take court reports because that's, what, that's what's said in court, you mm-hmm. know? I like that better than a news article. Amy also told Dr. Havana that she hesitated twice before stabbing the children, but the voice told her to practice on a bed. So that's what she did. She went and practiced on a bed, and then she went into the master bedroom where both of the children were sleeping and carried out the act. Amy was 41 years old when she was 40 when she committed the crime, 41 when Dr. Havana saw her. And she reported to him, to Dr. Havana, that she had a history of mental illness issues dating back to her early 20s. However, there's no medical records to support her claim. And she then told, now remember, this is the third psychiatrist for the defense that she's talked to. Uh And now she's saying it was God instead of Satan. Now she's saying she has a history and there is no medical, there's no history whatsoever. There's no medical. She's never been treated for mental health issues whatsoever. And she also said that she heard voices prior to, her date the date of the murders but she did not tell any of the other doctors who interviewed her that so I feel like that's compelling information because the more she talks to a psychiatrist you know this is now the third psychiatrist her story is changing I was gonna say it sounds like each time it changed a little bit Mm-hmm. Dr. Havana also said the number of stab wounds inflicted on the victims indicated that Amy was obviously psychotic. Now, I get that. I know you would think that. But stabbing is a very, psychologically, it's a very personal, you have to be very close to your victim. It's a very personal thing. And I think we can conclude from her notes that she wrote, this was very personal for her. This was fueled by anger at her husband who helped her create, or excuse me, at her ex-husband who helped her create those children. This wasn't about the children. This was about Chad Mm -hmm. and her hatred towards him and his new soon-to-be wife. Mm -hmm. So when he says, well, the number of stabs shows that she was psychotic. Okay, yeah. But it also shows the anger that she had towards Chad which you can have a crime of passion and murder out of anger, and it doesn't make you psychotic. See what I'm saying? I get what you're saying. Now there's another doctor, Dr. David Self. He is also an expert in forensic psychiatry, and the court accepted him as such. He saw Amy on two occasions, July 16th, 2008, and August 14th, 2008. He diagnosed her from suffering from major depression that was reoccurrent and severe with psychosis, He indicated with reasonable psychiatry certainty that due to mental disease, Amy was incapable of distinguishing the wrongfulness of her conduct in killing the victims. She advised Dr. Self that she had suffered from symptoms of major depression following the birth of Braxton. 
So now this is the fourth psychiatrist she's talking to. And now we're talking about having postpartum depression with Braxton that she never brought up with anyone else. And her her depression became much worse when her husband announced his intent to separate from her. He testified that the likelihood of a person suffering from mental illness increased if other family members suffered from mental illness. So what we find out in the court is that Amy's sister had a psychotic breakdown in her teens. Her uncle had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. And her maternal grandfather had committed suicide. Amy told Dr. Self that on the day of the offenses, she heard a male voice taunting her, saying he's going to take the children, he's going to take them. According to Amy, the voice told her that she had to keep the family together by killing the children and then herself and to stab the brains of the children. Dr. Self reflected on the defenses on Amy's self-inflicting wounds and said that only the most psychotic people attack their own eyes. So like you were saying earlier, you were really Ugh. disturbed by that. I was, <laughs> definitely. Mm-hmm. But. And I do think, I, I mean, I, I get it. Like, I see where they're coming at, did you she, know, with that. Did she, like, actually damage her eyes, or was it just, like, she surface wounds? She can still wounds? see yeah, surface wounds, yeah. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah. Just curious. Now, so that's what the defense brought forward. So now let's take a look at what the state presented as testimony, okay? And again, these experts were testifying after just a couple of of sessions right. with her, right. okay? And her story was different each time. So this the state called forward Dr. Rafael Salcedo, and he was appointed as a court expert in clinical and forensic psychology. He interviewed Amy on April 28, 2008, and in his opinion, within a reasonable de- degree of psychological certainty at the time of the offenses, Although the de- Amy was suffering from psychotic disorder, major depression, he agrees with that, the, distor- the disorder did not rise to the level that it impaired her ability to, to distinguish right from wrong. So, to state it differently, Amy was capable of distinguishing right from wrong, wrong when she murdered her children. And that's what I was saying with her saying I'm sorry in that note. Yeah. So he's not disputing. He's like, yes, she suffered from major depression. But it does not rise to the level where she wouldn't know that what that was she was wrong. doing was wrong. Mm-hmm. That I, I do agree with this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, Dr. Sel, ooh, I'm messing up his name so bad. Um, we'll call him Raphael because I like that. That is a nice name. Dr. Raphael. Also my favorite Ninja Turtle. So yeah, Right. So he said that there were numerous numerous sources of stress in Amy's life from 2006 until the date of the murders. Like Chad had moved out, divorced her. He, she didn't want the divorce. She was a single mom. Braxton also suffered from Asperger's disorder, which is a mild form of autism. He was very, or she was very angry with her ex-husband, and that anger intensified when she learned that he was involved with Kimberly, and then the children were excited that Chad and Kim were building a house, that Camille was becoming attached to Kimberly. She did disclose that, um, Amy did disclose that she saw Camille at a ball game holding hands with and sitting next to Kimberly. That hurt her very much. Uh Uh-huh. Camille was excited about being a flower girl at Chad and Kim Kimberly's wedding, and she also shared how upset she was about Judy encouraging the relationship between Braxton, Camille, and Kimberly. 
It's like she saw it as everybody's moving forward and having this joy. Yep. And, I, she and I'm stuck. not. So Dr. Raphael testified that psychosis builds up over time, a delusion that lasts for hours, beginning suddenly without any evidence or delusional thinking and ending after being shocked by a taser would be very unusual. He's like, this just, it, it, psychosis builds up over time. There are signs over time, signs that are different than just major depression disorder. Did she report that the taser like snapped her out of it? Like, I didn't see that, but I, in order for, I mean, he, that's what he's testifying to. Right. So he's like, listen, this would be really unusual. Right. Because gotcha. she's not acted delusional sense. So. He pointed out that Amy first claimed that she was acting at the direction of God and then later the direction of Satan. Also, he testified about the notes. He's like, these notes were not written by someone who is psychotic. And that, that to me, really stuck out, too, before I read about, about Dr. Raphael's testimony. That was my thought, too. Her notes were logical. The content is consistent with the circumstances that were found to be evidence in the case. So it shows that there's not any loosening of, there's no like loose associations here. He said that usually people that are having hallucinations and tangents like this, they will go off in their letters on tangents that make no sense, that aren't associated or connected with the situation whatsoever. That's not the case here. Usually you ask this person one question and they come back with something else. It, and so it shows their cognitive you know, disorientation and their cognitive disorders. But her note was both of them were very well written, well organized throughout the entire letter. They were even dated with the correct date and they were named two people that were pertinent that she, through evidence we could tell, was very upset at. They were to Chad and they were to Judy. Mm-hmm. And they were about Kimberly. When I found this, I was like, "See, okay, yes, that's where I was at. Okay. Not to be confirmation biased here, but I can see why as a juror member, that's the stuff that I'm, I would be looking at, you know? Mm-hmm. So he said that uh, Dr. Raphael stated that Amy's statement in the note, you wanted your own life, you got it. I'll be damned if you get the, t- the kids too, presented a plausible motive for the behavior that she manifested. When Amy wrote, I sure hope you two lying, adultering, home-wrecking whores can have more kids because you can't have these, she was telling Chad that she was getting ready to kill or had already killed the children and he was not going to have them. He also remarked that the note showed no evidence of delusional ideation. Specifically, the note did not refer to heaven or being together at all. And that's true. That's true. The notes do not talk about God told me to do this so that we could all be together. The notes don't even talk about suicide. He also discussed that her note to her ex-mother-in-law, Judy, the statement, well, when you started delivering my kids to that whore Kimberly, that was the last straw. Is con- that's consistent with Judy supporting Kimberly, developing a close relationship with the children. And Amy had a huge amount of anger at her mother-in-law and had not let Camille and Braxton visit Judy's house, which was just across the street from her own house, since June of 2007. So for nearly two months, the kids had not been allowed to go over to their grandparents' house during her time. So 
he, Dr. Raphael concluded the analysis of his notes by saying, well, this is a direct quote from him, well, what you have here is something that I've never had in the n- numerous not guilty by reason of a sa- insanity cases that I've been involved with. So in other words, he's like, I've been involved with a lot of these cases. I've seen a lot of not guilty because of reason of insanity, and I've never seen notes written like this. Mm-hmm. He said, that is, you have an authored description written by the defendant of her mental state at the time. Sometimes you have observers, sometimes you have video camera, sometimes you have witnesses, but rarely are you able to get inside the mind of the defendant in such close proximity at the time of the, of the offense. It's almost like having a videotape of her thought process at the time, and that's what's remarkable about this case. And I would add that there's no mention of psychosis or delusions or nothing psychotic in the notes themselves as opposed to what she self-reported. Right. Like, I see what he is saying here. He indicated in retribution killing of the children, also known as spousal revenge killing of children. There's an actual name for it. It's an actual definition. Mm -hmm. The woman who kills her children loves them, but that love is so overridden by her hatred for her spouse. It is typical in such a killing to leave behind a note to inflict cruelty on the other spouse. So he is offering a more logical explanation than insanity Mm -hmm. here. He testified that people who are depressed often commit suicide. A suicidal mother may be very concerned about what will happen to her children after the parent kills themselves. Therefore, they may decide to kill the children too. Given Amy's religious belief that heaven was a better place, which he noted was not a delusion, but rather a belief shared by many people from her church. He's like, you know, her her religion was not a delusion. Right. That's a belief. Yeah, she was a longtime devout. Yes, yes. Christian. Yep, so evangelical like she Christian. Mm-hmm. That heaven was a better place. Yep. Most and, all Christians do. Yes, <laughs> yep. And her anger towards Chad, she decided, in her anger towards Chad, she decided to kill her children, and attempt to kill herself. So in his opinion, Dr. Phillips, that is the first doctor that just saw her when she had originally came in, did not have enough information to render an accurate diagnosis. Dr. Phillips' final diagnosis of the defendant was psychosis NOS, which means not otherwise specified, or in other words, the diagnosis does not fit any category of psychosis. So this doctor, Dr. Raphael, is like, I'm sorry, but Dr. Phillips did not have any background information on Amy and assumed that she was crazy because she talked about Satan and God and seemed to be hyper-religious. So he's like kind of made a snap judgment while she was in the ICU. You know, Dr. Phillips just saw Amy when she was being treated for her wounds at the hospital. So that's Mm -hmm. why, you know, so um, the state also had Dr. George Sedane. As a court expert as well, he interviewed Amy March 24th, 2009, and he stated that although Amy was suffering from a depressive episode the day of the offenses, she was capable of distinguishing right and wrong and connecting the killings, you know, with right and wrong with, with her children. So he also found no evidence in her medical records that had exhibited any psychotic features prior to the day of the offenses or since, and now he's seeing her in 2009 or almost two years, you know, afterwards. He pointed out that on August 16th, 2007, on a functional health intake summary for a 
a physical therapist, she indicated that she could fully concentrate. So this was exactly three days before the murders. She had to see a physical therapist, and she was telling this physical therapist that she can concentrate, that she has no problems. But then later, by the time she's talking to the third psychologist or psychiatrist in her defense case, she's saying leading the days leading up to she was having troubles concentrating. She was not sleeping well. She wasn't eating well. Remember how mm-hmm. the doctors testified to that? Amy had told Dr. Sedan as well that a voice had commanded her to kill her children. She had told him that she attempted to stab one of the children, left, and then came back. And that she hesitated because she could not, quote, because, quote, she could not hurt her babies. Dr. Sedan's like, you know what? That statement tells me that she knew she was going to hurt her children. Someone who is having a psychotic episode is not able to distinguish those things, the right and wrong, the causing pain or not causing pain. She literally told him, I went in and I attempted to stab one of the kids And I couldn't do it because I could not hurt my babies. And then she left and she came back. And that when she left is when she practiced on the mattress and then came back and completed the murders. Breaks my heart. So again, yes, I'm with him. I'm with him here. Was she severely depressed? Yes. Was she insane and having a psychotic break? I just don't think so, Amber. There are too many other variables here that show she knew what she was doing was wrong, was going to hurt her children, but it was fueled by the fact that she was going to hurt Chad and Kim more. Mm -hmm. And they were going to go to heaven together, so it didn't matter. She was leaving them, and she was going to be with her kids. And he, she was going to get the last laugh here and leave them in this cold, lonely world without his kids. I think the letters reflect that. Mm-hmm. Dr. Sedan also said that he found nothing in Amy's note to Chad that indicated that she was in a psychotic state when it was written. He found no evidence of psychotic disorganization of thought that is seen in true psychosis. And as a matter of fact, he's like, actually, to the contrary, I feel like the note indicated that she was not psychotic at the time it was written because she said in her note, sorry, daddy, Celeste Renee, I love you too. It's significant. And I, I agree. Like I read those notes way before I read these testimonies. So I was really happy to see that the experts are like picking up on this stuff too. Of course they are. I mean, they're, that's why they're experts. But you know, that part to me is like, exactly. She's acknowledging that she had done something wrong. And actually in his 30 years of practice, Dr. Sedan said that he had never seen or read about a psychotic disorder that began and ended suddenly like this. Psychosis gradually develops, and they gradually ebb. He concluded that Dr. Phillips was mistaken in her diagnosis on August 23, 2007, because she did not have the view of Amy's claim of Satan being in the room and laughing at her within the context of her religious beliefs that Satan is a real and tangible entity. Okay, she had no background information. She didn't know that she was a God-fearing woman. She didn't know the information of the stressors that were going on in her life, the motive of her hatred of her ex-husband and his new soon-to-be wife, right? She didn't have any of that stuff. She's just seeing this woman going through an assessment of, eh, she's saying that that God told her to, or Satan told her to stab her kids, and she says she sees him in the room right now. 
right? So I'm dying to know what this jury decides. <laughs> she was charged with first degree murder of both children and the trial was grueling for everyone. When the descriptions of how Amy woke up at 3 a.m. to voices and the details of how she murdered the children were testified to, Amy sobbed so violently in the court that recess had to be called. Chad, the children's father, had a very difficult time with hearing the testimony oh as God, well. God, I can't imagine This for is him. the first time for him to have, have heard it. The in- entire courtroom was a mess of emotions. It scarred the jury to have to see the crime scene photos. It scarred the attorneys, too. They would later say that they spent 14 to 16 hours a day for a year and a half on this case and that they will never get those mm. images out of their no. mind. Never. It was also stated during the trial that the children had suffered and had very painful deaths. And at that point, Chad couldn't maintain himself anymore. I can't maintain Mm -mm. myself anymore. Yep. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Oh, my gosh. You'd never be the same after a case like that. Ever. No. Most definitely not. Braxton had 50 to 55 stab wounds just on his back. I know. Oh, my gosh. The amount of force and effort, physical effort that that takes... There were knives that were bent. The other thing is that one witnessed the other, obviously. Yes. And that just hurts. That hurts my heart. Yes, and I didn't look into those details. I can't. I can't know. I don't, yeah. I don't know. Ugh. I don't know. Now, in the state of Louisiana, she was eligible for the death penalty. And after many days of deliberation, Judge Jerome Barbera announced to a packed courtroom that the jury of 10 women and two men in the capital murder trial of Amy Hebert, they were unable to reach a unanimous verdict needed to sentence her to death. So therefore, in accordance to state law, Barbara ordered her penalty would be life imprisonment. She thanked her defense attorney, Richard Gruley, Gorley, sorry, Gorley, and told him that she would pray for him. I'd be like, no oh, thanks. He, I, yeah, I would be like, I'm good. Please leave my name out of <laughs> yeah. your thoughts Please and Please don't mouth. ever pray for me. Please. She was ultimately sentenced on June 24th, 2009 to two life terms for the murder of her children. And she will spend the rest of her life at the Louisiana Correctional Institute for Women in St. Gabriel. Now I'm going to give you a piss you off warning. We like to do trigger warnings. I'm going to give you a piss you off warning. Okay. She's not free. She's not getting free. Okay. But (laughs) thank you. Yeah. Not for letting me know that first. In February 2011, she filed an appeal to her conviction on several grounds, and I won't go all over all the grounds, but I'll just I'll give you the ones that really stuck out to me that pissed me off. The first one is that is the grounds that I already told you about that they collected evidence without a warrant. She was almost dead, so like they really didn't need one. That just that right there. I'm like, "Oh, okay, that's what you want to nitpick at. The fact that the police were doing their job and collecting evidence just in case someone had come into your home and tried to brutally murder you and had murdered your dog and children. Okay, cool, cool. The other one is that the state did not prove that she was sane. No, the burden of proof rests on the defense to prove that you are insane. The state does not have the burden of determining whether or not you're sane or insane. You entered a plea of guilty by reason of insanity. So it is up to the defense attorneys to show the jury your insanity. And they were unable to do so in this case. It sounds like she was really just grasping at whatever she could. Yes. How long How long before she appealed? Was it This was 2011. In oh. the case, she was sentenced in 2009. So okay. it was heard in 2011. I'm sure they, they said to the media right away when she was sentenced that they would be filing an appeal. 
She uh-huh. went, you know, right away. Gotcha. No, because she was insane. The jury did not find her insane. No matter about the testimony that I told you about, the jury made their own conclusions that she was not insane. Right. And life in prison it is. Her Another one of her problems was that her case should have been heard outside of her county. Okay. I don't know how much it was heavily covered in the media or not. I'm sure it was very shocking for the, the community. She feels that her sentence of two life sentences was excessive punishment and that those two sentences should have been concurrent. Oh, my. Wow. I'm sorry. I got nothing. Bitch, you think that two life sentences because you took the lives of two children, a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old, you think that's too harsh? What is... No, it's not harsh enough. I just envision her being like, mm, this isn't going to work for me. Yeah. why? Like, that's were, a lot. Why are my two life sentences not being run concurrently and just be one life sentence? This is too much of a slap on the wrist. Your child, you stabbed in total your children over a hundred times. Nope. Wow. It's not, I it's envision not bad enough. The attorney just like going bald over the years <laughs> with stress oh, from all this. Yes. Like, dear God. Yes. Not again. If any of these appeals, like if they agreed to any of these things in the appeal, it could give her cause for a new trial. Like this, this is serious when people appeal stuff that mm-hmm. someone might look at and be like, okay, maybe, you know. So here's a quote from the appeal of how they rejected and denied her appeal. Quote, the defendant brutally killed her two helpless young children. She is the worst kind of offender. Consecutive sentences are not necessarily excessive. And in this instant, the record amply supports the trial court's decisions. Thank you. Thank you. For those closest to Amy Hebert, the unimaginable events of August 20th, 2007 remain a mystery. Anna Tambry, a lifetime friend of Hebert, recalls standing in their wedding. Chad and Amy's wedding after visiting, and she even visited them in the hospital after Camille and Braxton were born. The two friends continue to talk by phone and visits Hebert when she can, and she vowed to stand by her in the years ahead. Wow. Here's a quote from her. Quote, I am so blessed that God has placed her in my life. Her friendship means the world to me. I am praying and looking forward to the day when I will be a witness to her testimony, which will which we will share with the world. And Anna Tambry isn't alone. Stacy Stegman, a friend and fellow member at the Victory of Life Church where, you know, Amy and her children worshiped, she said that Amy continues to have an impact on others. She has a way of touching people's lives in ways I have never experienced, she said. Most times she never says a word. It's the presence and peace of God that she carries. It beams from her. Her heart is always wishing to please God first. Isn't it amazing how people can feel so differently, like, with these things? I mean, we've seen cases before where... Um, you know, the Greg Green, he yeah. got involved with the church and they really believed that yes. he was like, they saw the goodness in him and they were like, he deserves a new, you know, another chance. Yep. And like, it just, uh, I'm giving those Oprah judging eyes. Like, oh, me too. Like I, I told me you too. about in my case. To me, this is no. <laughs> like, mm, okay, good for you. But mm, tell okay. us how. Tell us how you f- you can feel this way. I am shifty eyed sideways glancing at you right I now. I need to show you the Oprah eyes. Like, yes. It was- 
No, no. The, I mean, this is like Charles Manson getting people in prison to marry him. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm sorry, people. So there are still some supporters behind her. At the same time, I hope she stubs her toe every single day until it falls off. That's, that's where I'm at. I I hope she stops on 10,000 Legos. There, yes. There over and over again. Yep. yep. No, that Gets this a perineum is so rash. awful. Something. <laughs> With no cream available. No cream. They don't treat perineums in prison. No. I 10,000 paper cuts to the perineum would be even better. I feel like I wouldn't want to have that duty, though. To do the paper cut. He's got to give the paper cut. Good point. All right. Who else is really horrible? Like, let's give equally horrible people. Yes. That that person need they get to Myra Hindley gets to do the paper cuts. Yep. She's a sadistic bitch. Yeah. She didn't probably enjoy that. I honestly, I think her jealousy and hatred of like you are not going to move on without me. Yep. And the, and these kids yep. consumed her so much yep. that she snapped. She did. And it's so sad. I mean, it's really sad all the way around because it does sound like she was a decent person before I know. all this. That's and then the divorce it. happened and she just lost her shit. Lost it. Spiraled. And it but, is unfortunate. But I don't agree. She was not insane. I think it, I mean, honestly, the the hatred and anger that she had over seeing her children like this woman mm-hmm. and that he had moved on because I mean I don't know who wanted the divorce or how that he happened did. he wanted it he wanted so it. that that even adds yep. to it yep and then they have this co-parenting thing where they're kind of like it's still going connected well. yes. yep maybe there was some false hopes that they could still I'm sure you know and then this other girl comes along yep. uh-uh. and squashes no. those dreams yeah <sighs> The whole thing's so tragic. The other thing, too, is when the police found her and she had the knife, told them to get the fuck back. That, to me, that's very different than, like, your guy from Sunday who literally just walked out of the factory. I just did this. And was like, my kids are in the furnace. Yes. You know, so it's not psychosis. It's not, it's, I don't think it's, it is a good, not guilty by reason of insanity defense. She knew what she was doing. And unfortunately... And the jury does agreed. she have mental illness? Yes. Yep, she does. You have to be to be able to commit yeah, that absolutely. on some level. Oh, do you so want sad. a brain bath? I need like so. I took our I uh, a good so bath. much so much. I need bubbles. like an exfoliation, sugar scrub, um, loofah. Yes. All right. Some cream afterwards. Like okay. I, I need the whole shebang. I have a cutesy one for you. Oh, good. It's cute. It's light. It, but it also ties in with our theme. Bruh. God didn't tell Bruh. you to do that. Yeah. Bruh. Also, if you have teenage boys like we do, I get called bruh more than I get called mom. Landon's said it a few times. Bruh. Landon's also, he's appro- appropriate with his language, though, so he doesn't say often. Right. Like he wanted a dictionary for his birthday. So <laughs> Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> oh, my kids like to think they're really cool. So they'll be like, bruh. We actually were just having a conversation last night and decided that... When Landon is old enough to drive, that his car of choice would be a Model T. <laughs> He's so old school, old fashioned. I couldn't see him in anything else. I was like, me neither. I'm like, I can't see you in a modern nope. car. You will be driving yes. a Model T. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> That's anyway, perfect. Yes, I would like a light little little brain bath. All right. Well, this was on MSNBC.com. You've seen exorcisms take place in movies and TV shows. Real life. But have you ever seen one in the lumber aisle of a Home Depot? Oh, God, no, no. 
police in Lackawanna County, Pennsylvania, which I'm like, Lackawanna? Is that just sounds like a place for an exorcism to to take place? It's so funny. I feel like one day people were like, yeah, I lack the want to name this place. So they're like, Lackawanna. That's perfect. Yes. Let's do it. Yes. You know, part of me is like, oh, God, no. Part of me is like, oh, God, I want to see this happening. So they, the police in Pennsylvania, in Lackawanna County, Pennsylvania, received a bizarre call that, quote, disorderly people were performing a exorcism, quote, for the dead trees at Home Depot in Dixon City. Oh. They were escorted out of the building, but they were in the lumber aisle. <laughs> No. Performing a seance. So like with the two by fours? Yes. The, the lumber aisle. Yes. <laughs> the dead wood. Go to a, you know what? Go to a, an elderly home. You could do the same oh, thing. Oh my goodness. Yes. One officer from the Dixon City Police told Philly Voice that, quote, it was a seance type of thing for the dead. There were two people hanging out in the lumber department doing their little exorcism thing, the officer said. Some people at the store started picking up that something was happening that wasn't necessarily normal, so the police were called to the store and they were escorted out of the building. The individuals in question will not be charged, Charged, the officer said. So the news of the incident was put on a police blotter, which have you ever seen the police blotters? They just give a timestamp with a little oh, explanation yes. of what the incident is, yeah, yeah. right? So on their Facebook, they post the police blotter and it... And it had a 3.26 p.m. timestamp, but all the the timestamps around it were very normal police issues. Mm -hmm. And they gave no explanation for their 3.26 p.m. timestamp that said the exorcism incident. Right? That is my favorite thing. On their Facebook, they had over 200 comments where people were like, can you? We need more. Yeah. We need to know what happened. One comment was, can you elaborate a little more on the alleged exorcism in the lumber aisle? One commenter commenter asked, another wrote, please, may I have a crumb of context and also yes. body cam footage of the yes, Home Depot? please. That's just a little snippet that a teaser, like they- For sure. They, they wanted- were generating- <laughs> And it worked. It worked because they're just. I would exorcism. be the same way. Like, no, no, no. Tell we need the details. All on this. I said was exorcism incident lumber aisle Home Depot. Like <laughs> that is so good. So good. So then somebody else commented, "How does a wood exorcism happen in 2021 and not a single person in Home Depot videoed this for our entertainment?" I need answers. You know, I don't see a problem here. I if if you want to honor the the fallen wood. If only Sorry, I had, to. I had, I had a dollar to. for every time I honored the <laughs> fallen wood. If you want to honor the fallen wood, God. you should be able to do that. Yes. So I don't I don't see an issue I loved here. the quote from the police officer that was like, they were doing a, an exorcism thing for the dead wood. <laughs> <laughs> like, does that bring it back? No big deal. Tell us, tell all women how to do that then, please. <laughs> do you light a candle and just say a couple of words and it's back? It's back in <laughs> business, yeah. Oh, oh my gosh, shit. this is so good. This is a good one. Sometimes, I, another commenter said, sometimes I think the two by fours in my garage are, po- are possessed, but little information is actually known. The incident was described in just 27 words in between news of traffic stop and a car crash. 
I just want to know who like had this idea. Like why? Like let's go to Home oh, Depot. They were high as. Uh, okay, now we're talking. Don't you think? <laughs> where they're like, I know what we should do this afternoon. Oh, for sure. That would make the most sense unless they are like super, super. Let's go exercise these demons yeah. out of. <laughs> that just reminded me of Scary Movie too. When he he they start like the guys on the toilet. And he's like, please, God. Yes. Yeah. Help me exercise this demon (laughs) or release this demon. We've all been there. I mean, really. (laughs) It can be a spiritual experience. Some people are going to be there for your um, tushy bidet. Yeah. They might. (laughs) It might be a spiritual photo. Who knows? God. I see Jesus's face in my shit. (laughs) Can't wait to follow up on that. Yes. All right. So. That's all for for today, that's, guys. An hour and a half. That's later, a lot. That is a lot for today. Follow us on social media. Leave us a review if you feel so inclined. That would be fantastic. It helps us get seen. Join us for more on crimecuriouspatreon.com if you would like a lot more content of us. And um, keep it curious, but not to the point where you are exercising demons in the Home Depot right. lumber aisle. Right. Get escorted out peacefully by the police and uh and if you do though send pictures please Please. give us the story (laughs) give us the story and until next time everyone take care bye-bye